Part 1. From Invasion to Insurgency, 2002-2003. Chapter 2. Regime Change. Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Part 1. From Invasion to Insurgency, 2002-2003. Chapter 2. Regime Change. Part 1. From Invasion to Insurgency, 2002-2003. Page 29. Chapter 2. Regime Change. In the Shadow of September 11, 2001. Page 31. The normally festive season between Thanksgiving and Christmas in 2001 was a frenetic affair for U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM. CENTCOM Commander General Tommy Ray Franks was supervising U.S. and coalition military forces in Afghanistan, where, since October, they had been fighting alongside members of the Northern Alliance to remove the Taliban from power. In addition to the battles in Afghanistan, Franks was overseeing planning for what the George W. Bush administration had coined the War on Terrorism, a campaign against major terrorist groups and the countries that supported them. Neither of these campaigns was conducted to the satisfaction of Franks or the administration of then-President George W. Bush. Despite the rapidity of the U.S.-led advance in Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden, Mullah Omar, and other key perpetrators of the September 11, 2001, or 9-11, attacks, and the Taliban leaders remained at large. Moreover, concerns about state-sponsored terrorist organizations acquiring and using weapons of mass destruction, or WMD, and dirty bombs permeated U.S. national security decision-making during the latter months of 2001, driven in part by a public feeling of sudden vulnerability. Security policies and contingency plans under revision before the attacks suddenly received elevated amounts of attention. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, that attention became focused on another target well outside of Afghanistan, Saddam Hussein's Ba'athist regime in Iraq. Within days of the 9-11 attacks, senior officials in the Bush administration began exploring options to remove Saddam from power. Their efforts culminated in surprising instructions to the CENTCOM commander to formulate contingency plans to invade Iraq and destroy Saddam's regime. Planning for Regime Change Page 31 A New Mission for CENTCOM As the events of 9-11 unfolded, Department of Defense, or DOD, leaders scrambled to respond to the attacks whose origins were then unknown. Hours after the attacks occurred, the Joint Staff issued an order directing CENTCOM to begin contingency planning against five named countries in the command's area of responsibility, one of which was Iraq. Franks and other CENTCOM leaders were too preoccupied to devote much attention to this tertiary planning effort, as from October to November 2001, they were in daily contact with the Office of the Secretary of Defense, or SECDEF, concerning information requests and orders about the prosecution of the wars against the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Unlike Iraq and other long-planned contingency operations, there had been no prepared war plan for Afghanistan or for a non-state actor with global reach like al-Qaeda. As a result, when Franks and his staff were not actively responding to requests for information from the SECDEF, the National Policy Team, or the President, 
They devoted most of their organizational energy to building plans and campaigns around what were essentially piecemeal deployments to South Asia that were approved directly by the SECDEF. While Franks received periodic updates on events in the northern and southern no-fly zones, Iraq did not feature prominently in his thoughts. The situation changed on November 27, 2001, when SecDef Donald H. Rumsfeld relayed to Franks the president's requests for revised military options on Iraq. Rumsfeld asked for an update on the existing contingency plan for Iraq, numbered 1003-98, the following week, and outlined the desired end state for an Iraq campaign as follows. 1. Iraq's regime enablers, leadership, and power base destroyed. 2. Iraq's WMD capability eliminated. 3. Iraq retains sufficient forces to defend itself, but no longer has the power to threaten neighbors. 4. Iraq has an, quote, acceptable provisional government in place, end quote. And 5. Iraq's territorial integrity remains intact. Rumsfeld's guidance marked a significant shift from previous contingency planning on Iraq, very little of which had envisioned an invasion to enact regime change and replacement in Iraq. The changes rendered Franks incredulous, as he was fully occupied by the new wars against the Taliban, al-Qaeda, and terrorism more broadly, but he and his operations director, Air Force Major General Victor Jean Renoir, Jr., duly assembled a small planning team to develop a concept for regime change in Iraq. As the CENTCOM commander, Franks was at the pinnacle of his career. He was one of the few who had risen through the enlisted ranks to become one of the Army's most senior general officers. After enlisting in 1965 and training as a crypt analyst, he was commissioned as a field artillery officer in 1967 and served in Vietnam, Korea, and later as assistant commander of the 1st Cavalry Division in Operation Desert Storm. Before ascending to CENTCOM, he had commanded the 3rd Army, where, as the dual-headed commander of the Army component of CENTCOM, or ARCENT, he had been deeply involved in developing the 1998 version of the contingency plan for Iraq. When Franks took the helm of CENTCOM on July 7, 2000, the command was comprised of five service component commands, ARCENT, the Navy component, or NAVCENT, the Air Force component, CENTAF, the Marine component, Marcent, and the Special Operations component, Soxent. However, with the onset of the Afghanistan war in 2001, Franks judged that CENTCOM, quote, could not keep up with the operational demands of the fast-changing tactical situation in Afghanistan, end quote, and directed a reorganization of his service components into functional commands on November 10th. The result was the Coalition Forces Air Component Command, or CFACC, the Coalition Forces Maritime Component Command, or CFMCC, the Coalition Forces Special Operations Component Command, or CFSOCC, and the Coalition Forces Land Component Command, or CFLCC. CFLCC combined all of the ground forces, U.S. Army, U.S. Marines, and Coalition ground forces into a single command under a single commander. Its primary contributors were the 3rd Army, commanded by Lieutenant General Paul T. Mikolashek, and the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st MEF, commanded by Lieutenant General Michael W. Hagee. Although the two commanders were peers, Mikolashek became the overall commander for CFLCC. 3rd Army's recent history had prepared it to be the ground component command for the planned invasion of Iraq, though it was already committed in Afghanistan. 
Franks relinquished command of the unit just before taking over CENTCOM and was familiar and comfortable with the unit's capability. He had also fought and won a battle to relieve the 3rd Army Commander position of its other hat as the Deputy Commander for the U.S. Army Forces Command, or FORCECOM, making it entirely a CENTCOM component command. 3rd Army had small command posts already forward in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Qatar, and on 9-11 had placed personnel and equipment into position for Exercise Bright Star in Egypt. In November, 3rd Army was heavily engaged in responding to post-9-11 Joint Staff orders calling for updated plans for an invasion of Iraq. When finished, the new plans called for using a single Army Corps with Marine augmentation to, quote, seize terrain in southern Iraq in preparation for future operations, end quote. This limited objective focused on Iraq's southern oil fields near Rumaila and did not require any U.S. forces to maneuver north of the Euphrates River. It was this plan that 3rd Army and eventually CFLCC used as the basis for more expansive operations in Iraq. The Army had four different corps eligible to execute such a plan. 3rd Corps, based at Fort Hood, Texas, the V, or Victory Corps, based in Germany, the 1st Corps, headquartered in Fort Lewis, Washington, and the 18th Airborne Corps, based in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. However, in the fall of 2001, the 18th Airborne Corps was engaged in Afghanistan, 1st Corps was focused on the Pacific Theater and Army transformation and lacked the proper composition to take on a large fighting role, and 3rd Corps was dedicated to contingency operations for the Korean Peninsula. As a result, 5th Corps was selected to serve as the major army component of ground operations in Iraq and to participate in Exercise Vigilant Guardian in late 2001. The selection took 5th Corps Commander Lt. General William Scott Wallace by surprise. Wallace had taken command of 5th Corps three months before, on July 18, 2001, expecting that his corps would remain focused on the Balkans, and specifically Kosovo, where it maintained a large NATO peacekeeping mission. After 9-11, he recognized that the emphasis would likely change, but had thought 5th Corps would be given primarily defensive operations, including preventing another terrorist attack on U.S. soil or interests abroad. Once the United States established a solid defensive posture, General Wallace expected that the Corps would then transition to offensive operations, quote, on our terms against whatever enemy we were able to uncover thereafter, end quote. However, he had not anticipated that Fifth Corps would be named the main planning headquarters for invading Iraq and removing the Ba'athist regime from power. The Initial Concept and Assumptions as CENTCOM began to plan for regime change in Iraq, Franks and others started to note some assumptions that were driving expectations for the operation and its outcome. The first concerned military operations in Afghanistan, where the combination of air power and employment of Special Operations Forces, or SOF, had seemingly validated the Office of the SECDEF's views on the Revolution in Military Affairs, or RMA, and its determination to limit the number of American troops involved in close combat and stabilization. The SECDEF insisted that the Afghanistan model could be applied against the planned invasion of Iraq. Throughout the planning process, Deputy Secretary of Defense, or D-SECDEF, Paul Wolfowitz and others in the office of the SECDEF pressed military commanders and planners to reduce the number of forces required and the timeline for mobilization, deployment, and redeployment. The back-and-forth exchanges among Franks, the office of the SECDEF, the National Policy Team, and Bush 
continued throughout the planning process, affecting both the time spent on military planning and the manner in which forces flowed into theater. The second major assumption influencing planning for Iraq, promoted by Wolfowitz and others, was that the United States and its partners could liberate Iraq rather than occupy it, much as they had liberated France in 1945. Defense leaders thought that Iraqis who were not loyal to the Ba'athist regime would welcome U.S. and allied forces with parades, flag-waving, and an eagerness for democratic government. These expectations were reinforced by members of the Iraqi expatriate community in exile, such as Iraqi National Congress leader Ahmad Chalabi. Beyond these overarching assumptions, CENTCOM made planning assumptions of its own that had repercussions for both the invasion and efforts to stabilize Iraq afterward. The first was that CENTCOM would be able to open a northern front in the operation by sending a U.S. Army Corps or division through Turkey. Franks and his commanders saw the operational value in surrounding Saddam's forces in the push toward Baghdad. However, because they needed the support of the European Command, or UCOM, to make the proposal a reality, CENTCOM instead began planning operations merely to deceive Saddam into thinking coalition military forces would be maneuvering south toward Baghdad from Turkey. When UCOM Commander General James L. Jones informed Franks in May 2002 that using Turkey was a real possibility, UCOM and CENTCOM began looking at concrete options to move a division-sized element through Turkish territory. CENTCOM's second major assumption concerned Saddam's alleged WMD program. Although CENTCOM and U.S. policymakers did not believe Saddam had a nuclear weapon just yet, their judgment, matching the consensus position of the U.S. intelligence community, was that the Iraqi regime was seeking to enrich uranium in preparation for building one. The fact that the Iraqi dictator had used chemical munitions during the Iran-Iraq war and against the Kurds in 1988 also loomed large in their minds. The third key assumption driving CENTCOM planning was that the bulk of the Iraqi army would not fight, but would either surrender or capitulate during the invasion and, with the right treatment and messaging, could be recalled to active service after the regime fell. The recalled Iraqi forces could then be used to augment U.S. and coalition military troops to provide security while an interim Iraqi government was being established. These assumptions, when taken together, were the lens through which the office of the SECDEF guided military plans, resulting in a proposal for a relatively light ground force component for the invasion, a near-simultaneous air and ground attack, and few forces or detailed planning dedicated to the post-regime Iraq. Decision-makers believed the United States would not need a large number of forces because of the seemingly successful precedent set in Afghanistan that U.S. forces would be welcomed as liberators and that the Iraqi army would help provide security under a new, more enlightened Iraqi government. Based on these two assumptions, there was no need for U.S. forces to conduct large-scale security operations. With these planning principles in place, Franks and his team briefed Bush and Rumsfeld at Camp David on December 28, 2001, outlining the invasion plan in four phases. Phase 1 involved building the coalition and international support necessary to conduct offensive operations in Iraq. Phase 2 was a shaping effort, a combination of psychological and military deception operations designed to encourage segments of Iraqi society and its armed forces not to resist. Phase 3 involved military operations to destroy Iraq's remaining armed forces and decapitate the Iraqi regime. Phase 4, or stability operations, addressed the transition to a new Iraqi government. 
Franks's concept briefing also contained three potential force packages. A robust option assumed that basing was available from most of the U.S. partners in the Middle East and that the United Kingdom would contribute troops. A reduced option required approximately the same number of personnel, but assumed that support was unavailable from Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and Saudi Arabia. A unilateral option assumed that the United States would conduct operations without support from either its Middle Eastern partners or the United Kingdom. The U.S. contingent required for all three proposals was approximately 105,000 initial forces, with the size of the follow-on component ranging from 225,000 to 238,000 boots on the ground. Because these two force figures were additive, the final projected strength on the ground was well more than 300,000. The president's response at the Camp David briefing was clear. He strongly desired to remove Saddam from power, and sooner rather than later. The president even offered that invading Iraq on Saddam's birthday, April 28, 2002, might be an appropriate symbolic time to destroy the regime, a proposal that CENTCOM and its component commands determined would present too short a window in which to prepare and mobilize its forces. Regardless, CENTCOM's sense of urgency to build the plan increased, and the command's focus rapidly shifted from operations in Afghanistan to Iraq. Tensions in the Iraq War Planning The intense planning period that followed the Camp David briefing was colored by significant tensions between DOD civilian and military leaders. Rumsfeld arrived at the Pentagon in 2001 determined to transform how the U.S. military prosecuted the nation's wars and to strengthen civilian control of the military. This agenda created tensions with senior officers. Other factors also contributed to difficult relationships among the civilian leadership in the office of the SECDEF, the Joint Staff, the Service Chiefs, and the Combatant Commands. Stovepipes within the office of the SECDEF, combined with some personality conflicts, distrust, and institutional intransigence, tended to inhibit joint and interagency situational awareness and caused inordinate amounts of planning time and energy to be spent on revisions to the plan. Most of the previous contingency planning for limited military objectives in Iraq, including Desert Crossing, had been coordinated among CENTCOM, the Joint Staff, and the Service Chiefs as force providers. The new plans for regime change in Iraq, however, were highly compartmentalized, classified top secret with an additional caveat called Polo Step, access to which Rumsfeld limited to a small number of people in the office of the SECDEF, the Joint Staff, and CENTCOM. Rumsfeld's restriction barred the Joint Chiefs and Services from synchronizing and resourcing the early planning efforts, and it also prevented CFLCC and its subordinate core elements from developing parallel plans in any detail until after Franks' first commander's huddle in Rammstein, Germany, in March 2002. Rumsfeld's managerial style affected the war planning as well. According to Abram Abe Shulsky, a special assistant to Undersecretary Douglas J. Fyth, Rumsfeld, quote, was very reluctant to give a direct order, end quote, preferring instead to nudge people in the direction he wanted, quote, without being direct about it, end quote, and by asking questions like, quote, do you need that, end quote, and, quote, what are other ways of doing this, end quote. The secretary's aversion to definitive guidance was oddly juxtaposed with his tendency to micromanage. 
After serving nearly a year under Rumsfeld, Franks was accustomed to receiving the secretary's musings, ideas, and pointed questions in intermittent memoranda known as snowflakes, so-called by DOD personnel because of the prolific white paper they generated in senior offices. A veritable blizzard had descended on CENTCOM since 9-11. The snowflakes, personal phone calls, and secure video teleconferences drew the secretary into the minutiae of tactical operations instead of the overall strategy and policy guiding them, a fact that bred resentment among military leaders. From the beginning of his tenure, Rumsfeld's military transformation agenda and management style had alienated Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Henry Hugh Shelton and Chief of Staff of the Army General Eric K. Shinseki. Although Shinseki supported the idea of restructuring and transforming the Army, he gained a reputation, first with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or CJCS, and later the SECDEF, for being hard-headed over his decision to change the Army's headgear from service caps to a black beret. The seemingly trivial issue had grown to be significant when former and retired members of the Army Rangers, the only unit authorized to wear the Black Beret at the time, resisted the change, raised the issue with Congress and the President, and thus created political difficulties for the SECDEF. In meetings discussing the Beret issue, Rumsfeld commented on Shinseki, quote, making another bad decision, end quote, suggesting the relationship between the two had already soured. For their part, Shinseki... Secretary of the Army Thomas E. White, and, to a lesser extent, Shelton, saw themselves and the Army as a bureaucratic target of Rumsfeld's aim to reduce the size of the armed forces. Rumsfeld, a former Navy fighter pilot, quote, seemed partial to the Navy and Marines, end quote, they believed, and he also disliked the Cold War mindset and Balkans-type stability missions that were the main focus of the Army throughout most of the 1990s the Army found itself engaged in a battle to limit further downsizing while the administration debated the feasibility and force structure required to engage in two land wars simultaneously. Leaks of sensitive planning information gradually eroded trust in the already contentious relationships among CENTCOM, the Joint Staff, the Service Chiefs, and the Office of the SECDEF. The first major leak of war plans occurred at the same time as the March 21st Commander's Huddle in Germany, leading CENTCOM planners and Franks to suspect that someone from the air component, frustrated with the proposed abbreviated bombing campaign discussed at the conference, had communicated their displeasure privately to the media. Relations were further strained in May 2002 when, during the height of war preparations for Iraq, the Washington Post journalist Tom Ricks reported that the Joint Chiefs were waging a, quote, determined behind-the-scenes campaign to persuade the Bush administration, end quote, against war with Iraq. The Joint Chiefs and Franks, Ricks reported, had told the President that ousting Saddam's regime would require at least 200,000 troops and remained, quote, shoulder to shoulder, end quote, against the SECDEF. Rumsfeld also believed Shinseki had implied to colleagues that Rumsfeld's own office was leaking Iraq war plans to the press, which infuriated the Secretary. In a harsh verbal reprimand to the Joint Chiefs, Rumsfeld accused the military leaders of not being forthright with him told them that their complaints about not being consulted about war plans were unfounded, and declared that if they had problems with any of the combatant commanders, they should confront that commander directly, rather than via leaks to the press. The, quote, problems with combatant commanders, end quote, apparently referred to problems between the Joint Chiefs and Franks, with the latter's direct line to Rumsfeld and the President effectively isolating the Joint Staff from the planning process. 
From Franks's perspective, the service chiefs were mired in service parochialisms and jealous of the combatant commander's mission to, quote, command forces in wartime, end quote, and he had even referred to the Joint Chief of Staff representatives in public and private as, quote, Title X motherfuckers, end quote. Sensing that they were being marginalized and feeling distance from the planning process, the Joint Staff often issued planning guidance and orders well after CENTCOM had already begun working on the guidance it received directly from the SECDEF. Taken together, these factors tended to discourage collaboration among the services, the Joint Staff, and CENTCOM. Generated Start, January to May 2002 Within 60 days of the Camp David briefing, the Joint Staff formally directed CENTCOM to transition from planning for a limited attack to planning for regime change. Through the winter and spring of 2002, CENTCOM developed six iterations of an invasion plan that, based on guidance from Rumsfeld, would contain ever smaller numbers of forces and shorter deployment timelines. This first series of CENTCOM plans, renumbered 1003V and eventually known as Generated Start, envisioned a rapid buildup from three divisions at the onset to between five and six Army, Marine, and Coalition divisions as the campaign progressed. Movement of forces was to begin on N-Day, the day that the President notified the command to commence, after which CENTCOM would have 30 days to prepare its forces until C-Day, the day the forces began flowing into theater. Deployment of the initial force of three divisions, or two corps, would take an additional 60 days, during which special operations forces would suppress Saddam's long-range missile systems and link up with Kurdish militias in northern Iraq. D-Day, the beginning of combat operations on Iraqi soil, would commence while the remaining divisions deployed to Kuwait. Air and ground campaigns would commence nearly simultaneously in order to catch the Iraqi military by surprise, a stark contrast to the five-week air campaign of 1991. The two corps' worth of ground troops would also attack simultaneously to overwhelm Iraqi forces. Maneuvers to isolate Baghdad would take approximately 45 days, with regime destruction and the onset of stability operations occurring over an additional 90 days. The entire operation, from start to finish, would take approximately 215 days. While Franks and his planners refined generated start in Tampa, Florida, CENTCOM and service logisticians met at the U.S. Transportation Command, or TRANSCOM, headquarters at Scott Air Force Base, Illinois, to develop unit deployment packages and timelines using the Time-Phased Force and Deployment List, or DATA, or TPFDL, or TPFDD, a complex planning tool DOD developed for similar contingency plans. Because the TPFDD planning was concurrent with generated start refinements, each component was able to estimate the force structure that might be needed to support variations on the plan and to verify the logistical feasibility of their proposed timelines and maneuvers. It was a valuable innovation in the logistical planning that Rumsfeld would ultimately discard entirely. Shock and Awe and Running Start, May to July 2002 Rumsfeld's intent for Iraq was to enter with a light footprint, be able to move fast, and be able to exit Iraq very quickly, a vision that differed sharply from the initial CENTCOM plan. In response to Franks's iterative concept briefings on Generated Start, Rumsfeld sent Franks a paper written by Harlan K. Ullman and James P. Wade in late April 2002. 
It outlined the concept of shock and awe and how it could be applied in devising war plans. Ullman and Wade advanced the idea of rapid dominance, in which a comparatively small-sized military force could, through a display of military might, enforce its will on a powerful country and military to enact change. Some of the mechanisms to induce shock and awe included the use of unstoppable lethal weapons like long-range air power to, quote, impose a regime of unrelenting and ever-increasing stress, end quote. Any of the relatively small number of ground forces used to enact the change must, quote, arrive suddenly, strike without remorse, and terminate their presence quickly, end quote, before the adversary had the opportunity to recover. Rumsfeld had previously introduced Franks to Army Colonel Douglas A. McGregor, an officer working on Army Transformation for Shinseki, who shared Rumsfeld's vision for wars of the future. Both the shock and awe authors and McGregor argued that the U.S. military could topple the Iraqi regime with a division-sized element or less, an idea that shaped the war planning guidance Rumsfeld provided to CENTCOM. Some senior U.S. officers had difficulty envisioning a light footprint for an invasion of Iraq and opposed modifications to tried and tested processes for deployment and conduct of major combat operations. Lieutenant General George W. Casey, Jr., then the Joint Staff J-5, recalled that there seemed to be no middle ground between what the Office of the SecDef leadership envisioned for Iraq and what the senior Army leaders and CENTCOM demanded in terms of time and resources. Casey believed that the President, the SecDef, and some of the Joint Staff viewed the Army as overly tied to a deliberate and comparatively slow TPFDD process that Rumsfeld and others regarded as a Cold War-era relic. For his part, Casey believed, quote, the Army was quick to cry micromanagement instead of considering how to refine their processes, end quote. The ensuing tension would only be resolved once Rumsfeld decided to discard the TPFDD for Iraq and instead use the request for forces model DOD had employed in Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, in which commanders requested force packages piece by piece as the requirements for them arose. Although CENTCOM's proposed force numbers for generated start began at 385,000, by the time Rumsfeld and Bush were briefed again in the late spring, the numbers had been whittled down to 275,000, a force Rumsfeld insisted was still, quote, way too heavy, end quote. Rumsfeld suggested that the roughly two brigades for a routine training exercise with the Kuwaitis should suffice as an invasion force for Iraq. These units consisted of a brigade-sized Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MEU, an Army Brigade, and a special operations company whose teams were embedded with Kuwaiti military units. Franks strongly disagreed with this radical proposal, arguing that such limited forces would be unable to topple the regime and lacked the logistics to make it to Baghdad. Rumsfeld raised the idea again with Bush during a briefing at Camp David on May 11, 2002, but Franks persuaded the president and the SecDef instead to give CENTCOM additional time to refine generated start into a faster deploying plan with a lighter force. As these discussions about the size and speed of the ground forces unfolded in May and June, U.S. officials began to worry that Saddam might conduct a preemptive attack into Kuwait, complicating the planned U.S. invasion. U.S. officials had received indications that the Iraqi army was on the verge of collapse, and they feared Saddam might decide to use his forces while he still could. The president, national policy team, and office of the SecDef were also concerned that, as U.S. and coalition forces flowed into the theater in the middle of Iraq's internal difficulties, 
the movement would provide Saddam with, quote, unambiguous warning, end quote, about the U.S. intention to invade. This might provoke an attack on Kuwait, the Kurds, or the Shia, flood Iraq's southern marshes, sabotage Iraq's infrastructure, attack Israel, or, in the worst-case scenario, use WMD. U.S. leaders wanted a plan that would give them the flexibility to prevent these contingencies but still maintain the ability to remove Saddam from power. The new plan CENTCOM developed in response to these concerns was a branch plan-generated start called Running Start, in which smaller ground forces would begin major combat operations while the rest were still deploying. Unlike Generated Start, which called for a two-core ground invasion in conjunction with an air campaign, Running Start planned for a Marine Division and an Army Division to lead ground operations, followed by a second, core-sized Army element, with the overall movement into theater shortened from 60 to 45 days or less. Running Start also contained three different options for the timing of an air campaign, depending on what the immediate situation in Iraq demanded. As CENTCOM developed the Running Start plan, the inevitability of the Iraq invasion began to hit home. When Franks returned from briefing Bush in June, he announced to his component commanders that the invasion of Iraq was no longer a matter of if, but when. He judged that the president wanted to conduct the invasion sometime in the late fall of 2002. The Hybrid, August 2002 the running start concept had obvious flaws that CENTCOM planners were quick to highlight, most glaringly that it lacked enough troops to guarantee the destruction of the Iraqi regime. While the ground component of running start could probably arrive in theater and achieve some limited military objectives, there would not be enough support forces to sustain the maneuver force. In addition, running start, if executed as planned, would lack the near-simultaneous application of national power critical to executing the shock and awe concept. Because the initial thrust could not be sustained all the way to Baghdad, Saddam would probably be afforded the space required to reinforce Baghdad and sue for peace on the international stage. The short time horizon for running start would also shorten the time available for diplomacy to secure basing and overflight agreements with partner countries, jeopardizing deployment timelines. When Franks briefed Bush on running start in July 2002, he advised the president that it would be impossible to launch the plan by October 2002 because the requisite operational and strategic follow-on forces could not be mobilized in time. With the running start creating concerns because of its low number of forces and the generated start too unwieldy, CENTCOM and its components began developing a hybrid option, with a starting ground force similar to that of Generated Start entering theater sequentially, as in Running Start, but in greater numbers. In the hybrid, 30,000 Marines and Army soldiers would enter Iraq on G-Day, and the remainder of 1st MEF and 5th Corps would flow in over the next 18 days. By the time two months had elapsed in the ground campaign, the entire Generated Start force of 200,000 troops would be operating in Iraq. The proposed air campaign for the hybrid was similar to an option in the running start, in which ground operations would commence 16 days after the initial airstrikes. The deployment timelines in the hybrid were longer, too, to allow U.S. diplomats more time to finalize agreements for staging and basing in the region. Meanwhile, CFACC and CFLCC could use an expansion of operations Northern Watch and Southern Watch and training exercises to increase their footprint subtly in Kuwait and the North. 
In the hybrid plan, CENTCOM aimed to minimize both the force footprint and the risks associated with putting maneuver forces into theater too quickly and maximizing opportunities to take advantage of Saddam's behavior and achieve operational surprise. The hybrid plan also contained a more detailed breakdown of Phase 4 operations, outlining four discrete periods of stabilization, recovery, transition to security operations, and full transition to a stable Iraqi government and redeployment of all U.S. forces over a period of 32 to 45 months. On August 14th, Franks briefed the modified plan to the Secretary of Defense and, after gaining Rumsfeld's approval, ordered his component commanders to develop execution details for the hybrid plan, on August 22nd. Weapons of Mass Destruction Iraq's WMD program had been a major U.S. and international security concern since the end of the Gulf War. After 9-11, U.S. policymakers worried that Saddam's WMD materials would fall into terrorist hands, and CENTCOM, along with the rest of the U.S. intelligence community, assumed that Saddam would, at a minimum, use chemical weapons against an invasion force. Interestingly, however, there were no specific plans to eradicate those materials or the sites at which they were suspected of being developed, as WMD elimination was not part of the deliberate planning process or joint military planning doctrine in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Consequently, although U.S. contingency plans for Iraq from the 1990s and the revisions in 2000 identified the elimination of Saddam's ability to make WMD as an end state, None of them assigned any units or organizations the responsibility for exploiting and destroying suspected WMD sites. As planning for 1003V was finalized, CENTCOM realized that there was no interagency group or special operations plan to take on the task of finding and eliminating Saddam's WMD. By default, CENTCOM, as the combatant command, was stuck with the mission in a combat scenario. Franks and his planners realized they needed to incorporate the seizure of suspected WMD sites into the final war plan for Iraq. When CENTCOM requested a list of the suspected sites, they received a list of 900 potential WMD facility locations compiled by the Defense Intelligence Agency containing input from some of the other national intelligence agencies. CENTCOM planners then began to prioritize those suspected sites based on their size, composition, and assessed viability and lethality. The final product was entitled the Weapons of Mass Destruction Master Site List and was incorporated into the final war planning effort for Operation Plan 1003 V. The Result Little Phase 4 and WMD Planning By late August 2002, Franks and CENTCOM had made headway in persuading U.S. leaders to accept the hybrid concept, but had become thoroughly frustrated with what they viewed as micromanagement from the office of the SECDEF on all aspects of the plan. Rumsfeld's iterative demands for reductions in troop levels and deployment timelines had consumed nine months of CENTCOM's planning time, and yet had resulted in a prospective invasion force Franks and his commanders believed might be insufficient for the job. Despite the functional, if somewhat strained, working relationships Franks developed with the SECDEF and other senior decision-makers, he was frustrated by his inability to educate them about the minimum requirements to ensure success in toppling Saddam Hussein's regime, a frustration Third Army leaders shared. Most importantly, though, the intense focus in the planning process on the invasion itself 
meant that only a relatively small amount of attention had been paid to Phase 4, the period of post-conflict activities when the U.S.-led coalition would be shepherding a new Iraqi state into being. At the time 1003V was issued formally to the CENTCOM components in October 2002, there was only a sparse outline for post-hostility plans apart from redeployment operations and nascent plans to secure the Iraqi regime's suspected WMD stockpiles. The Strategic Situation in Iraq Page 43 In retrospect, the most significant aspect of the Iraq invasion planning was not the shortage of troops or the lack of Phase 4 planning, but rather the gaping holes in what the U.S. military knew about Iraq. This ignorance included Iraqi politics, society, and government, gaps that led the United States to make some deeply flawed assumptions about how the war was likely to unfold. One reason for the U.S. military's problematic intelligence preparation of the battlefield, or IPB, was the lack of reliable sources on the inner workings of the regime and Iraqi society. Analysis on Iraq in the interwar period focused principally on Iraq's WMD program and the positioning of large Iraqi military formations and major weapon systems. Little emphasis was placed on examining Iraqi society in anything more than a cursory sense. What little information available about the sustainability of the Ba'ath regime and the Iraqis' willingness to support regime change came primarily from the Iraqi expatriate community. Apart from having agendas that did not necessarily align with U.S. policy interests, or Iraqi national interests for that matter, the expatriates tended to be disconnected from the Iraqi population that had remained behind and suffered under Saddam Hussein's rule. The highly compartmentalized war planning also made it difficult for CENTCOM to integrate additional sources of information into assessments of Iraq's societal and military characteristics. CENTCOM and its partners identified some groups and populations within Iraq that were probably willing to assist the ground invasion as it moved northward. Some were resistance groups in the Kurdish and Shia populations who had armed themselves against the Ba'ath, while most of Iraq's Shia were expected to provide at least passive support to military efforts to decapitate the regime. While U.S. military estimates pointed out some of the Iraqi opposition groups were, quote, generally skeptical of the U.S. commitment to regime change, end quote, they expected that the coalition could take key actions to demonstrate its resolve and motivate latent opposition groups, such as the destruction of select, highly visible regime security forces, Ba'ath Party headquarters, and other symbols of regime power. Other actions that CENTCOM thought might embolden indigenous resistance groups involved efforts to encourage the capitulation of large segments of Iraq's army and, of course, regime removal. Not all of the military assessments of Iraqi society's likely response to the invasion were so sanguine. CENTCOM planners reviewed the reactions of Iraqi society to Operation Desert Storm and discovered some unnerving lessons for the 2002 war plan. One was an invasion might ignite a sectarian bloodbath as the Iraqi factions retaliated against each other in post-Saddam Hussein Iraq, with widespread reprisal attacks beginning immediately after the collapse of the regime. Unfortunately, these dissenting assessments had little impact on planning for the invasion and its aftermath. Iraqi Military Capabilities and Intentions Despite some of the shortcomings in the IPB analysis, CENTCOM built an extensive assessment of the Iraqi regime's defense plans and capabilities based on Iraqi military defense plans in CENTCOM's possession. 
CENTCOM described Iraq's defense and security apparatus in terms of concentric rings of defense, the center of which was Baghdad. The outer ring was comprised of the Iraqi army, while the interior rings were comprised of the Republican Guard, Special Republican Guard, Special Security and Intelligence Organizations, and Ba'ath Party Militia and Special Intelligence Services at the center. The purpose of these forces was to protect Saddam Hussein, his inner circle, and Baghdad in that order. CENTCOM also expected Saddam to use chemical weapons at various points to delay or fix coalition forces outside of Baghdad while the inner ring consolidated to defend the city. Thus, CENTCOM assessed that the operational center of gravity for the Iraqi defense was the special security organizations, special Republican Guard, and the Republican Guard forces in the vicinity of Baghdad, along with Saddam's surface-to-surface -surface missile inventory. Even though CENTCOM judged that Saddam had a coherent defense plan for Baghdad, they believed his military forces had significant operational weaknesses. United Nations, or UN, sanctions, Saddam's distrust of his own forces, and Operations Northern Watch and Southern Watch may have degraded the capabilities of the Iraqi Air Force, Army, and air defense systems. CENTCOM also had some information on what they labeled Saddam's, quote, vanity forces, end quote, including the Quds Force, not to be confused with the Iranian regime organization of the same name, and the Fedayeen Saddam. Some sources suggested that the Quds Force was a National Guard-like force of lightly trained Iraqi volunteers whose purpose was to defend their locales from any outside incursion. The Fedayeen were another matter, as they were led by Saddam's eldest son, Uday Hussein, known for his sociopathic tendencies and mental instability. The Fedayeen did not seem to have a place within the tightly controlled security structure Saddam had built around himself. Some reports noted that the Fedayeen were an unconventional force trained in guerrilla tactics with a, quote, golden company, end quote, devoted to suicide missions, but CENTCOM had few details about the unit's size, strength, and mission. Additionally, because the Fedayeen were managed by Uday, U.S. analysts considered them a token force with which Uday could cement his place in his father's regime, rather than a viable defense mechanism. The Regime's Strategic Perspective Political and military matters were intrinsically mixed in the Iraqi regime. Saddam Hussein's concerns about assassination and remaining in power translated into a focus on internal security and a proliferation of competing paramilitary and intelligence entities. Moreover, Iraqi society had undergone some fundamental changes since 1991 that affected both how it behaved and how Saddam prepared to respond to that behavior. In the early 2000s, Saddam's primary concern remained internal threats, both from disaffected segments of Iraqi society and from prospective insider coup attempts by Ba'ath Party rivals or the Iraqi military. Saddam's secondary concern was regional threats, Iran and Israel foremost among them. The threat posed by an American-led coalition ranked only third on Saddam's list of dangers to his rule. Because his first priority was to counter any further 1991-style uprisings from Iraq's Kurdish or Shia populations, Saddam distributed the bulk of the Iraqi army and Republican Guard in northern and southern Iraq. He also sent his intensely loyal paramilitary forces to locations in southern Iraq to prevent the population there from rebelling. Saddam addressed his second defense priority, Iran, by deploying other regular army units along Iraq's southeastern border and highways to prevent Iran from taking advantage of any civil chaos. In truth, 
The capabilities of Iraqi conventional forces were even more degraded than CENTCOM assessed. The more professional conventional military forces tried to modernize and reset their formations while dealing with continuous reductions in resources and the Iraqi Military Industrial Commission's inability to deliver specialized secret weapons for Saddam. Because Saddam created an environment in which he generally received only positive information, Iraqi army leaders were reluctant to communicate the true state of their diminished forces' capabilities. The command, control, and communications networks across different Iraqi security services, too, were not nearly as coherent or organized as analysts thought them to be, reflecting Saddam's wariness of any well-coordinated security force structure that might coherently mount a coup attempt. Instead, he deliberately inhibited communication between the regular army and the Republican Guard, and he forbade the Republican Guard from operating inside Baghdad. The Special Republican Guard, the only conventional military force he authorized to operate within Baghdad city limits, was expressly forbidden from communicating with other Iraqi forces. U.S. military analysts may have overestimated some of Iraq's military capabilities, but they underestimated others. During the course of operations Northern Watch and Southern Watch, Saddam's forces became adept at using mobile weapons systems, hide sites, and caches that were not easily detected or tracked. It was, however, the overlooked so-called vanity forces that would create the most pressing difficulties for the coalition invasion. Movements and capabilities of paramilitary forces like the Fedayeen were also difficult to detect, and the secrecy in which they operated precluded adequate information on their composition, strength, and activities. Finally, Beyond the regime's politics and security apparatus, Iraqi society was not particularly well-primed for a second American invasion. The U.S. failure to support the Kurdish and Shia uprisings in 1991 had left Saddam's regime free to brutally repress them. There had been no equivalent to Operation Provide Comfort for Iraq's Shia, many of whom remained deeply angry and skeptical about U.S. intentions. The UN sanctions on the regime had also taken a significant toll on the Iraqi public's goodwill toward the international community, and the United States and the United Kingdom in particular. The sanctions not only reduced the amount of humanitarian aid that reached needed Iraqi citizens, but also allowed Saddam to control the delivery of aid and, in so doing, to solidify his power base. Saddam's propaganda placed much of the blame for the sanctions squarely on the United States. As a result, significant portions of the Iraqi population became embittered and hardened against the perceived source of their suffering, the United States. The sanctions also made it difficult for well-educated Iraqis to make a reasonable living, and many of them had no choice but to leave Iraq. The mass departures of Iraq's intelligentsia effectively removed most of the political opposition to the regime. Iraqis were not, then, a population that would necessarily welcome a coalition liberation with open arms. Instead, they were a segmented population with pockets of people who were very suspicious of Western intentions for their country. Saddam's WMD Deception Program Saddam had indeed used chemical weapons in the past, but, unknown to the rest of the world, had dismantled almost all of his WMD program and stockpiles by 1999. Why, then, did he go to such lengths to encourage the world to believe that he still had them, or, at the very least, that he retained some clandestine WMD capability? We now know Saddam believed he had to convince both his rivals inside Iraq and his regional adversaries that he retained the capability to make and use WMD to deter attacks from inside and outside Iraq, 
even as he struggled to persuade the rest of the international community that the program no longer existed. Saddam had used chemical weapons against Iran and the Kurds in the 1980s to demonstrate not only that he maintained a chemical weapons stockpile, but also that he would not hesitate to use them if he believed the survival of his regime was at stake. Privately, Saddam told his inner circle afterward that simply threatening to use chemical weapons would achieve the desired psychological impact on his adversaries. Quote, I mean, sometimes what you get out of a chemical weapon is when you keep saying, I will bomb you. It is better than bombing him, actually. It is possible that when you bomb him, the material effect will be 40%, but if you stick it up to his face, the material and spiritual or psychological effect will be 60%, so why hit him? Keep getting 60%. End quote. Saddam frequently reminded his close advisors that Iraq was in an environment where even perceived vulnerabilities could draw attackers. Ultimately, he wanted to retain the ability to reinitiate his WMD program once the sanctions had ended in order to maintain the internal and external security of his Ba'ath regime. Thus, his goal between 1991 and 2003 was to encourage the international community to remove the UN sanctions and simultaneously keep a repository of scientific expertise. He organized several front companies, engineered UN oil for food program contracts, and created separate protocols outside of the UN with other countries to continue trade under the sanctions regime. The UN sanctions also permitted Iraq to maintain and build weapons delivery systems with a range under 150 kilometers, thereby allowing Iraq to keep its weapons manufacturing infrastructure intact and to keep the human capital to run it. Saddam also kept all of his nuclear weapons scientists in the country and continued researching a nuclear weapons capability in the 1990s. Finally, Saddam did take steps to destroy his chemical weapons stockpile after the 1991 Gulf War, but he maintained the expertise necessary to create chemical agents and construct chemical weapons. The invading U.S. and coalition troops would later discover remnants of these Iraqi chemical weapons stockpiles. Iraq and terrorism. In the interwar period, Saddam dabbled in financing terrorist organizations and preparing his special intelligence and security services to conduct terrorist attacks. As he did so, Saddam was careful to avoid overt relations with terrorist groups and provided no direct support to al-Qaeda, whose ambitions for an Islamic caliphate clashed with his own desire to preserve his regime in Iraq. Saddam had better relations with other terrorist organizations. Although he did not sponsor terrorist organizations on his own soil, he did provide financial support to some terrorist groups in the decade prior to Operation Iraqi Freedom, including the Abu Nidal Organization, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, the Palestinian Liberation Front, and Hamas. Saddam was particularly interested in supporting Palestinian terrorist groups and had a long-standing relationship with Hamas, through whom he funded families of suicide bombers who attacked Israel. In exchange for Iraqi support, Saddam expected these groups to follow guidance from Baghdad when required. In the early 2000s, Saddam and his security and intelligence directorates became keenly interested in using assassinations, suicide bombings, and improvised explosive devices, or IEDs, against Iraqi opposition groups and Iranian targets. To that end, Saddam's Gafiki project, nested within the Iraqi Intelligence Services, or IIS, began recruiting suicide bombers from other countries, while special mission units in the IIS Criminology, or M16, directorate received training on building car bombs and other IEDs. 
The IIS worked extensively to perfect IED construction, analyze the technical aspects of terrorist attacks, and conduct lessons learned sessions for failed operations and explosive uses. At the same time, the IIS Directorate of Liberation Movements, or M8, hosted Palestinian, Lebanese, Libyan, Syrian, and North African fighters in paramilitary training camps and proposed in its 2002 annual report to activate another training camp for an Arab Liberation Front inside Iraq. The Fedayeen Saddam benefited from Saddam's growing interest in using terrorism domestically and abroad. In 1999, Saddam decided that he would assign the top 10 recruits from each Fedayeen class to conduct operations in Europe against Iraqi opposition leaders, with Ahmad Chalabi explicitly among the targets. Other Fedayeen were designated for operations in the Kurdish regions of Iraq and Iran. Saddam later outfitted the Fedayeen's Golden Company to wage war against any rebellion or uprising that might incur inside Iraq to include one that might arise with support from an American invasion. The Golden Company's primary tactic was suicide bombings using vests or other similar mechanisms. There was one independent Islamic terrorist organization known to be operating on Iraqi territory. Ansar al-Islam, an affiliate of al-Qaeda, was engaged in an active war with the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, or PUK, as the terrorist group attempted to expand its territory beyond a small corner of Suleimania province. After Saddam attacked the northeastern Iraqi Kurdish town of Halabja with chemical weapons in 1988, many of the Kurds in the area fled across the border to Iran, where an extremist Sunni Kurdish cleric, Sheikh Abd al-Latif, convinced a number of the refugees that jihad was the proper response. His adherents returned to Halabja under the leadership of another extremist cleric, Mullah bin Abdulaziz, and together they formed the Islamic Movement of Kurdistan, or IMK. In the 1990s, the IMK took advantage of the civil war between the Kurdistan Democratic Party, or KDP, and PUK to expand its influence from Halabja into other areas of Sulaimania and eventually into parts of Erbil. Military pressure from the PUK later fractured the IMK into several splinter groups, some of which became hardened Salafis and developed relationships with Al-Qaeda. With Al-Qaeda's encouragement, these organizations merged in September 2001 into a single group that eventually became known as Ansar al-Islam. Al-Qaeda leaders viewed the emergence of Ansar al-Islam as an opportunity to expand their foothold in the Middle East. Ansar al-Islam's leaders, Mullah Krekar and Abu Abdullah al-Shafi, worked openly with al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda in turn provided resources, training, and guidance to the group, enabling it to carve out a miniature Islamic state in the Halabja area. From there, Shafi used his ties with Iraqi Salafis to grow Ansar al-Islam's support base further by incorporating underground Sunni extremist networks in Nineveh province. With the fall of the Taliban in late 2001, Ansar al-Islam sheltered a number of al-Qaeda members and affiliates fleeing Afghanistan. One of those who sought refuge with Ansar al-Islam was Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who had served with al-Qaeda in Afghanistan but had been reluctant to swear fealty to al-Qaeda's senior leadership. Zarqawi's stubborn independence and international ambitions complicated Ansar al-Islam's efforts to establish an Islamic emirate in Kurdistan. The secular PUK viewed Ansar al-Islam and Zarqawi as a threat, particularly after the organization began targeting Kurdish civilians and PUK affiliates. 
Zarqawi also used the Ansar al-Islam infrastructure to conduct crude experiments with chemical and biological weapons, though the limitations of the group's facilities and his people's lack of chemical expertise constrained his efforts. One unintended consequence of these experiments was that they attracted the attention of Western and Middle Eastern security services that began targeting and detaining members of Zarqawi's network. The experiments brought Ansar al-Islam unwanted attention that would eventually lead the coalition, with support from the PUK, to destroy the group's Halabja safe haven, though the alliance between Ansar al-Islam's survivors and Zarqawi's fledgling Salafi group would become the core of al-Qaeda in Iraq. The dearth of information about Iraq's social dynamics and internal turmoil since the 1991 Gulf War led the United States to misjudge Iraqi military activities and to formulate policies and plans at odds with the reality of a deeply segmented and traumatized Iraqi society. U.S. policymakers and CENTCOM failed to account for the amount of distrust Iraqis felt toward the United States because of the 1991 uprising and the 1990s sanctions regime. Flawed U.S. assumptions about how the Iraqi people and state institutions would respond to regime decapitation led to inadequate preparation for post-regime governance and stability requirements. At the same time, while the national intelligence agencies and CENTCOM were aware that Saddam had no direct ties to al-Qaeda at the time of the 9-11 attacks, they were largely unaware of his indigenous paramilitary capability to conduct terrorist attacks. They were also unaware that he had focused his regime's security forces almost exclusively against internal threats rather than against external adversaries. Finally, CENTCOM was aware of Ansar al-Islam's activities in northern Iraq, but did not appreciate how far the group's networks extended into the broader Iraqi Salafi community, or that Islamist militancy had gained a significant foothold in northern and western Iraq. Within the DoD itself, structural stovepipes inhibited information sharing and inclusive planning, and when combined with Rumsfeld's managerial style and the personality conflicts among key leaders, resulted in a tightly compartmentalized planning process that focused too heavily on major combat operations and was not coordinated across DoD or the broader U.S. government. The quick tactical victory over the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in late 2001 seemed to validate Rumsfeld's views about the future of warfare and convinced him and others that a small U.S. force aided by indigenous fighters and air power could replicate the feat in Iraq. The Secretary's continual downward pressure on CENTCOM's force requirements for the invasion and its aftermath resulted in a plan that, when executed, would speedily topple Saddam Hussein's brittle regime, but would prove unequal to the task of consolidating a tactical military victory. End of Chapter 2, Regime Change Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021